Welcome to BEWorks Conversations. I'm Kelly Peters, the CEO and co-founder of BEWorks. In this series, I talk with the world's leading scientists who are experts in behavior. In each episode, we explore how their cutting-edge research can help us understand and tackle the challenges we face as a society. And we talk about how organizations should apply these insights to move forward during and after COVID-19. I'm very happy you're here. In today's conversation, I'm talking with Cass Sunstein. Cass is the founder and director of the Program on Behavioral Economics and Public Policy at Harvard. He's authored hundreds of articles and dozens of books, including the groundbreaking Nudge, Improving Decisions About Health, Wealth, and Happiness. He served on a wide array of national and international policy committees and boards, helping bring behavioral economics to bear on our biggest social challenges. He was recently named chair of the World Health Organization's Technical Advisory Group on Behavioral Insights and Sciences for Health. Cass and I had a great conversation about liberty in the context of public health. We explored the role of scientific thinking in democracy and how people's perception of risk are shaped. Thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate having the opportunity to hear your insights through this channel in addition to your copious and wonderful and very important writing. So thank you so much for letting me have a chance to also see the face, hear the voice uh, behind the words that have been so powerful for all of us. Thank you for that. Yeah. Um, I, I wanted to share um, some musings with you and I'm very excited about hearing your reaction to that. Um, as you know, he works in, and is headquartered in Canada and it's the month of July. And so looking at the difference in the responses to the pandemic between Canada and the US, I'm, I'm also American, reveals an interesting difference in how underlying beliefs and values can shape our behavior. And yes, this is a complex issue when it comes to these responses. And there isn't one underlying explanation. But one thing that stands out is that many Americans and only a few Canadians view the obligation to wear a mask as an infringement upon personal freedom. And here's an interesting reflection about this month of July, which is at the start of the month, we had the 4th of July in the US, a commemoration of independence a celebration of the time in 1776 when 13 American colonies were no longer you know, subject to the monarch of Britain and were now these free and independent states versus in Canada and the Canada Day celebration on July 1st, which is a celebration of unification where three independent colonies were merged together. So on the one hand, we have a celebration of independence and the other, about unification. And this seems to parallel the responses by the citizens to the public health policies that are being implemented similarly in both nations. But in Canada, there isn't nearly as much protest against the use of masks or other freedom restricting approaches such as lockdowns. But in the US, we even have the president of the United States objecting to these measures. So I have this huge question for you, 
Professor Sunstein, which is, I think that these reactions are based on a misunderstanding of freedom. Americans say they value freedom, but the Declaration of Independence spoke about the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Liberty, not, not freedom. Liberty is not the same thing as freedom. And as John Locke says, and, and you've written about, freedom of people under government is to be under no restraint apart from standing rules to live by that are common to everyone in the society and made by the lawmaking power established in it. Persons have a right or liberty to follow their own will in all things that the law has not prohibited and not be subject to the inconstant, uncertain, or unknown arbitrary wills of others. In other words, my reading of this is that liberty is a more compassionate view of freedom. It entails the responsible use of freedom under the rule of law without depriving anyone else of their freedom or as is a painful consequence in the case of COVID-19, life. So with that opening, I'm deeply interested in your thoughts on liberty and freedom and how addressing these beliefs might help us overcome the resistance to the scientific guidelines to managing COVID-19. There, and I'm actually speaking from a house which was one of the places that British soldiers came on April 19, 1775, when American independence started, the war for independence started actually at this location. This is Concord, Massachusetts. And this is one of the handful of places that the British soldiers visited and were very close within walking distance of the North Bridge, which was where the shot heard around the world was fired. That was the shot that started the war, literally started the war for independence, uh, where the American farmers, one of whom lived in this house, uh, defended themselves against British troops. Okay, so there's a lot in your question. Uh, one question is whether it's just a fact that the disparate um, paths, let's say, of Canada and the United States reflect deep cultural differences. And the, that might be true, but I'm just not sure. So where I'm speaking from now, again, is in New England. And in New England, there's a ton of mask wearing. And we've actually stabilized pretty well the uh, COVID-19 transmissions. And there have been some areas in New England which have been extremely successful. There isn't cultural resistance in this part of America to wearing masks. Uh, I'm wondering, as you ask, whether we could imagine a scenario in which what's observed in large parts of the United States would be generally observed in the United States, or whether there's something in the culture that just makes that very unlikely. And, and I'm not sure. Um, often societies go on one path or another because of some serendipitous something that moves them in that direction. So is there something in the United States in particular that would lead to hashtag me too, that this would where it would start? or uh, Black Lives Matter, would the United States be necessarily a leader on those counts? Just not sure. The United States isn't number one in the world, I don't think, with respect to sex equality and racial equality. We have some spectacular achievements. Is, 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 that, is that something in our culture? Or is it that there was, there's some path dependence here? And I think there's path dependence is at least a large part of it. The fact that some prominent leaders have been skeptical of mask wearing 
in various places has been important to cultural resistance to mask wearing. And, uh, you know, it might be a particular state where the governor says mask wearing, I'm not sure if that's a good idea, or it might be the president's influence on some occasions uh, where he hasn't seemed that excited about mask wearing, though he shifted. And if it were, were a different governor, a different president. So just not sure whether there's a, 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 culture, a deep cultural account for what we're observing. It's possible, but I'd put a question mark next to that. Uh, with respect to liberty, the great um, philosopher John Rawls uh, wrote in a manuscript he never published. Uh, we post a signpost, no deep thinking here, things are bad enough already. And this is a great philosopher who was cautious about, uh, uh, about how much progress we can sometimes at least make on the most fundamental issues. Uh, I, I think liberty as you're describing it uh, has uh, uh, multiple possible meetings, meanings that are linguistically uh, acceptable. So you could understand liberty in 101 different ways that wouldn't conflict with the dictionary definition. Uh, there is an understanding of liberty, which is that uh, associated with John Stuart Mill, which is you can do what you want, so as long as you don't cause harm to others. Uh, that's one in the Western uh, tradition, a very influential account. Uh, it's an understanding of liberty that's completely intelligible. And then we'd say, I think very reasonably that if mask wearing is necessary to prevent harm to others, as the data seems to suggest it is, then uh, a requirement that people wear masks doesn't infringe on liberty any more than a requirement that people not hit other people or not, uh, uh, or requirement people get vaccinated, uh, if that's the justification so they don't make other people sick. So I completely agree that the mask wearing requirements that some places have uh, aren't an infringement on liberty property understood if they are understood as an effort to ensure against transmission by one person to another person. And as I say, in the, a lot of the United States, that's uh, widely agreed. Now, in any culture where people are asked to do something that's quite new, you know, if you said everyone has to wear a tie, all guys have to wear a tie, that would be sex discriminatory, I think. But if you said everybody has to wear a tie, that wouldn't be the most fun thing. And mask wearing is a little comparable to that in its not fun quality. But given the magnitude of the risks here, completely legitimate. And that seems now widely recognized in this country with the president himself uh, coming out very strongly in favor of mask wearing. A little later than I would have liked, maybe a lot later, but uh, as they say, better late than never. Awesome. I, I agree. I'm, I'm very happy that he's uh, updated his uh, position on this, which is something that is a fundamental insight in terms of scientific thinking. It's, um, you know, up, you know, willing to recognize that that one might have been wrong based on whatever information they had at the time, and then being willing to 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 change their position when when the facts suggest otherwise. Um, and that's one of those fundamental principles of, of scientific thinking then. And I'd love your point of view on scientific thinking. David Wade Chambers, several decades ago, 
uh, launched this activity called Draw a Scientist. And I've borrowed from this practice um, many, many, many times. And I've asked people to draw a scientist. And to this day, they still follow the same thing that he found decades ago, which is that people draw someone pretty much who looks like uh, Rick from Rick and Morty or Albert Einstein. And it's so predictable that he was able to make a thing called the draw a scientist inventory and actually catalog, you know, the crazy hair, the big glasses, the lab coat, the beaker. And with that is, is an implicit elitism and distancing between science and the thing that drives science, which is the scientific method and the process of scientific thinking. And so there's this, there's this chasm that we have in our society between scientific thinking and, and our everyday selves. And I fundamentally believe that scientific thinking is a tool that everyone should have access to as it, as it can really transform our knowledge and understanding of the, of the truth. I'd, I'd love to hear your point of view on the relationship between um, scientific thinking and in your work in studying the Constitution, developing principles of libertarian paternalism, and how scientific thinking um, is ultimately important for democracy. Well, I worked for four years in the White House, and two of my favorite offices were the Office of Science and Technology Policy in the White House, which was run by um, a professor named John Holdren and composed of scientists, uh, and the, uh, the economic uh, office, the Council of Economic Advisors in particular, uh, which is, consists of what you could understand to be scientists. They were uh, in well-functioning administrations. They are not really value-laden. They're trying to do the best they can with, uh, with the economic data and then to that extent, they are scientists too. And what is uh, admirable in a democracy is that if you have a question like, is this chemical dangerous? Is it something which the Environmental Protection Agency say should ban? They will give you data on the risks. And what I loved about uh, the scientists with whom I worked is they were completely unpredictable ideologically. They would say on Monday, that the kind of environmentalists are full of nonsense. It's really not risky. Uh, don't worry about it. And then on Thursday, they'd say, you know what? The environmentalists have it exactly right. And the risks associated with this chemical are, are, are pretty high and regulation seems justified on public health grounds. So uh, to have a, a significant role for scientists in a democracy is important and not anti-democratic. If the question is food safety policy, for example, you know, uh, you need to know something about the risks associated with lettuce under certain conditions or the risks associated, the E. coli risks, let's say, associated with some things. And scientists will know that. It doesn't matter if they are 29-year-old women who don't wear glasses or 77-year-old guys who have white hair like Einstein, uh, the question is, do, do they know things that need to be known by policymakers or by the public? Um, highway safety, pandemic control, 
how to deal with nuclear power, uh, how to deal with pesticides, how to deal with climate change. These all have a very large scientific component. And Walter Lippmann was an early um, thinker who was completely on top of the need for a very significant role for experts. Now, of course, sometimes experts disagree. And sometimes their disagreement is purely technical. Sometimes their disagreement involves values of their own. And it's very important to, to try to understand that. Uh, I found in, in, the, in the White House that uh, scientific disagreement on the vast terrain of issues that bore on public policy is not mediated by values. It's just different assessment of, uh, of very complicated scientific questions, which the data is the degree of agreement, and now I'm talking not about economics, but about what in ordinary language more is pure science, the level of disagreement was crushed by the level of agreement. Yeah, that's, that's a, a very helpful analogy, and I appreciate you circling it back to it, it liberates what the evidence says from who the person is that is presenting that evidence. And that is a very important insight for us when we think about uh, democracy, because it's not about those who may be more persuasive or have those attributes that are more stereotypically associated with people um, that have this persuasive appeal. And so it, it helps us cut through some of, that, uh, some of that, that potential bias that we all might implicitly have. I think, for example, one of the most uh, uh, troublesome air pollutants from the standpoint of public health is particulate matter. And if the question is whether to be more aggressive, let's say, in Canada or the United States with respect to ambient air quality for particulate matter, uh, where more aggressiveness will impose costs, possibly very significant costs, uh, there's no way of, of even approaching that issue without getting a hold of the best available science. And abstractly to ask, you know, how worried should we be about particulate matter is not helpful. I'm a lawyer and I don't have any expertise in that. Uh, if you do a poll on particulate matter, uh, if you're lucky, people will know what you're talking about, but this isn't what they specialize in. So it's, it's really indispensable to have uh, scientists telling the policymakers 